Welcome to the Plexus Podcast. Today, Brad Johnson and J.P. Novand are joined by Dr. Colleen Perry-Keith, President of Goldie Beacom College. Well, good. Well, welcome to the Plexus Podcast Series. Uh, today, we have President Colleen Perry-Keith from Goldie Beacom College. Thanks so much for your time today. Well, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. So let's start uh, with your journey. Um, let's talk about your path to the presidency. And I always like to ask the question, who were some mentors in your life that helped shaped, shaped your path? Okay. I, I actually never wanted to be a college president. And there are many days when I still don't want to be a college president, (laughs) but, um, it was, I started in higher education as a counselor, um, in an academic advising and counseling center and worked directly with students and with the academic side of the house. Um, I worked at a two-year community college at a uh, branch campus of a major research university at another research university at a graduate theological school um, and then became a college president at a small private two-year college, one of the last remaining private two-year colleges, which has now gone four-year, and then um, a four-year private and now another four-year private at Goldie Beacom. And um, my goal was always to figure out how to help students to be what they want to be. The reason I ended up in higher education was... (laughs) basically because I couldn't get a job in a public school at the K through 12 setting. I, when I first graduated from college, I worked for the Kelly Services Company and I, w- I worked in their office. So I was a person who hired the temporaries and then placed them out into um, job settings. And I ended up working for a Kelly office in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And it was in the mid-1980s, and the steel industry in, the, in that area of the country was changing and going overseas. And so you would drive through the area, and you would see these big hulking structures, these steel mills that had closed down. And the employees in the steel mills were out of work. So some of them would end up in our Kelly office. And these are union steel workers who had been used to making you know, upwards of 30 to $40 or more an hour. And the only thing available for them was light industrial work, which was going to pay minimum wage or maybe slightly above minimum wage. It wasn't enough for them to be able to, you know, have help their families to succeed on. So um, in dealing with that on a daily basis, I got thinking, you know, really, we need to talk to students in junior high and high school about what is it that they can do? What, what's the whole array of jobs? Because when you're in that kind of setting and you've been in the mill, you know, your whole family, your grandfather worked in the mill, your father worked in the mill, you know, everybody worked in the mill. You just thought that's what you were going to go do is work in the mill. And that's not what happened. And so, um, you know, how, how can we help people to understand skills and transferable skills. And if they still want to work in the mill, that's fine. But what else can they do to add to that skill set or add to their education and training so that if those jobs go away, there's something else for them to be able to go to. So that was my goal 
was to work, I figured, oh, I'll be a high school guidance counselor and that's what I'm gonna do. And um, then in, in Pennsylvania at the time, I could have done that, but immediately upon finishing my degree, uh, my husband and I, I was married to my first husband at the time and we moved to Oklahoma where you couldn't work in this, you couldn't be a guidance counselor in a school setting unless you had been a teacher first and I had never been a teacher. So I got a job at a college, at a two-year community college, and was able to do that sort of thing there. So that was my entree into higher education. And I worked um, basically in student services and in academic affairs at different institutions until uh, one day, a vice president, I was working at a regional campus for Ohio State. And one of the vice presidents at Ohio State knew me and he called me up one day and he said, I, I want you to think about uh, applying for a position at this graduate theological school that I'm on the board of. I, as a matter of fact, I was a founding trustee of. And I said, really, where is this? And he said, well, you probably drive by it all the time. <laughs> so he told me where it was. And you know, at that time, I think I'd been working in uh, the state system in Ohio for probably about seven years or so. I was already vested in their retirement system. And he kept talking to me about it. And so finally, I just said, okay, I'll apply. And they interviewed me. And I loved the idea of the challenge of the position that was being offered. It was an executive assistant to the president position. So I would be working in the president's office, working with the board of trustees, supervising admissions and financial aid, um, you know, a little bit of everything. And so I took that role. And then that president that I worked for, his name was Ned Dwyer, or still is, he's still alive. Um, Ned really became over time, an unofficial mentor who made sure that I had different experiences. I started as an executive assistant to the president. I became um, a capital campaign director, a vice president for development, and eventually an executive vice president, and was over everything outside of the classroom at the institution. So I learned a lot about small college administration and a lot about budgeting, a lot about how do you stretch a dollar as far as it'll go. And um, then, you know, I went on to other positions and as it turned out, um, when uh, Spartanburg Methodist, where I first became a president, when that search was open, uh, Ned was consulting on that search. And so he called me up and he said, I really think you need to look at this. This is the kind of position that you would love. You would love the school, you would love the students, you'll love the area. And this, this has your personality all over it. You need this. And I, you know, but at that point I had gone, um, I was in another new position. I was at Ohio University working in their foundation. And I, you know, just, I was comfortable. You know, you're back in a state system, you have that retirement system back, you know, it's a, I, it was just a good fit. And, but he kept on. <laughs> and kept saying, I know you pretty well. And I said, you know, Ned, I always said I didn't wanna be a college president because who wants the 24 seven nature of this job? You know, that's, that's not something anybody really wants to do. And he said, I know you say that, but this has you written all over it. So my husband read the material and he said, he's right. You need to apply for this. So I did 
got interviewed, got offered the job and started there in 2009. And I'm now in my 13th year as a college president at my third institution, probably my last institution. I, uh, I am you know, getting old, so I am looking more and more toward retirement at this point, <laughs> but I've got a lot of work to do here. So I would say in terms of mentors that really shaped had Ned not pushed me, I don't think I would have ended up doing what I'm doing today, which I honestly can tell you today is a really good fit for who I am. Well, there's a lot of competition out there. Yeah. You know, it's a saturated marketplace. So how does how does Goldie Beacom, how do you compete and how do you grow and thrive in this environment? Goldie Beacom is really very fortunate. Um, Back in 2014, well before I got here, I arrived in 2019, they started a, a program up called the Affordability Assurance Award. And what they were doing was they were working on growing their endowment. And so they were using the traditional tuition discounting model. So they were working on growing their endowment. They had their tuition that was you know, climbing a couple percentage points every year but they would discount tuition so that once you were accepted, everybody got about 13,500. So it cut the tuition effectively in half. So once you're accepted, you automatically get this affordability assurance award. And then we had other aid that got um, added on top of that. So from 2014 to the fall of 2020, that's what they did. Um, when I got here, we. They had already started a conversation about whether they should reset tuition and do a rollback. And so when I got here, we continued that conversation and engaged with some external help to help us really look through that. And so we made the decision to roll our tuition back 50%. So now the cost of one year at Goldie Beacom is $12,750. And we're a little different, and which allows us to compete pretty well because our, our rollback is funded by our endowment. Our endowment's a little under 200 million right now. And it is about 97% unrestricted. So our board can choose how to spend the earnings off that endowment however we would like. And we did the study and really came to the decision that spending it to roll back tuition would be the way that we'd wanna go with that. So that is allowing us to do to compete more in a saturated marketplace. So our price point is out there. We're also, you know, you can't just roll your tuition back. You gotta do a marketing campaign to get that word out there. We did not have good brand recognition or name recognition. And, you know, we got kind of a weird name, Goldie Beacom. <laughs> There's, is it Golden Beacon? Is it, somebody even called it Moldy Bacon. You know, who knows what, you know, you can't figure it out. I remember when I first was approached about Goldie Beacom, I thought, what is it? <laughs> Where is it? And so- Well, that's a good question. What is it? Yeah. Well, we started as a business school and that is still our primary focus is we're considered a specialty. If you look at the Carnegie classifications, we're a specialty institution. So at this point, you won't see us listed in the US News and World Report, you know, all of their rankings because their rankings don't rank specialty institutions for the most part. So we, you know, we're not there, but we have 
we offer more than half of our degrees in business, which is why we're still considered a specialty institution. Although our largest major right now is psychology and our second largest major is criminal justice. So, you know, that may be changing in the years ahead in terms of that, uh, how we're classified. But as a, starting as a business school and with that is, you know, more than 50% of our majors, we have about a 90% career placement rate within three months of graduation. And that's because of our majors and our, our connections in the community. Um, when we do a career fair here, we're well known for producing crackerjack accountants, really good accounting people. So when we have a career fair and I walk over into the gym to look around, you see all of these accounting firms there to hire our graduates. So that's who we are and our majors have helped us to have that kind of career placement rate in the marketplace. Um, even our psych majors now though are getting jobs still within three months of graduation. So that's been pretty good. Well, I know with our Plexus, we have our own ranking platform and Plexus is ranked mm -hmm. your psychology program and our criminal justice program and others in top, top five in the States. Yeah. So congratulations. Yeah. Uh, our psych program, I'm really impressed with, um, you know, it's, there's a graduate program as well. So we have the undergrad and then we have the grad program and a lot of students stay because you can, you know, work toward licensure through the graduate program. Once you graduate from there, you have internship hours, you've got practicum hours, you've got some of what you need to be able to then sit for the license and then you just have to continue doing supervised hours afterwards. So um, where do most of your students come from? I know a majority are in state. Yeah, but... about 60% come from within Delaware and then the balance come from about a five hour radius around Wilmington, Delaware. We have a lot of international students. We're NCAA division two. So we give um, scholarship aid, athletic aid for scholarships. A lot of our student athletes our international students. Um, a lot are not as well. We have about 250 of our undergraduate population are student athletes and probably about 50 of them are student are international student athletes, mm -hmm. uh, which actually makes for a really um, neat experience here on campus. It is very international. You, you hear different, well, yesterday I was at a soccer game and I'm sitting next to a young man from Serbia I have no idea what he was saying, but he was pretty energized about some bad call that the ref made. And, you know, so you can hear, you just hear it all around you. And, and yesterday was a perfect example. I've got Serbia beside me. I've got many native Spanish, or, you know, Hispanic students behind me talking and everybody in their language talking to whomever. So it, it was just a neat experience. But, um, we do about a five hour radius in of domestic students around this area. And now though, because of COVID, we can also offer 100% of our programs online. So we're working toward that. And I think that will open up some of the, you know, some other areas for us too. Yeah, so talk to us a little bit about that. What's your online strategy going forward? Well, we started um, with, we did nothing online at all pre-COVID. So in March of 2020, within four days, we had to go from total face-to-face -to, -face to total online. So we, along with a lot of other colleges in the country, did that. Um, what we 
took advantage of during that time was the middle states um, regional accrediting body who accredits us had the opportunity to go through an expedited process if you wanted to try to go through that to be able to continue to offer programs 100% online. So we went through that process and got approved. And our thought process, when we looked at our programs, we thought, okay, you know, we have an MBA program. We thought we would start with programming in terms of offering full programs, we would start at the graduate level because that's where our opportunity for growth is greater than at the undergrad level. So we thought, okay, let's look at the grad programs. We have our oldest program at that level is an MBA program. And we took a look at that, but there are a lot of MBA programs in the marketplace. So we thought, okay, ours isn't distinctive enough yet. So, you know, how are we gonna recruit people into that? So we went with the Master of Science in Finance as our first program. And the second one, the Master of Arts in Counseling Psychology because counseling psych is a big interest area. And so, you know, and with mental health needs across the country, we knew we could, um, you know, could maximize that program. And then with the MS in finance, we can, you know, that also will have some widespread appeal, but we could also target different areas. You know, Philadelphia is a big financial center, Washington, DC, New York City, those sorts of areas. And we have a pretty decent foothold in those areas because we used to do those, um, the MS and finance and the MBA programs on Saturdays. And so students would drive in from all of those areas and you know just come here on the Saturdays for that Saturday program. So we knew we could um, count on word of mouth advertising for that MS and finance on that level. And that would help to get the word out. So it's started out small, but we are now also doing a lot of digital advertising and, you know, geofencing and that sort of thing where we can maximize to our international student population. We have always had a very large international student population at the graduate level, uh, but we offered um, what they call day one CPT. So the continual practical training from the day, the first day you come. So international students that get a baccalaureate degree someplace can begin working and continue working while they're in school here because they can get their CPT through us and keep their job. And that keeps them here through the graduate degree for another couple of years, employers like that. So they have a stable workforce that way. So how, how do you keep students? When we talk about student services and retention and moving from term to term, uh, what, what methodologies and day-to-day -day processes do you have to keep students? We have um, had, we have freshman to sophomore retention is very good. It's about seven, well, this actually fall of 2020 into fall of 2021, it was 81% was our retention rate. Prior to that, it had been about 75 to 79% in that kind of rate. But persistence after that sophomore year is where our biggest problems were. So keeping students sophomore to junior, junior to senior went way down. Um, our graduation rates were ending, our six-year graduation rate was about 43%, which is just awful. I'd like to, our goal is to get it up above 70%. I'd like it to be 100%, but I, I know that's unrealistic. But in my world, that would be great. But um, what we're doing is we have, created a pretty intentional focus on, on retention. So we have a retention committee that meets weekly, um, does 
one-on-one -on -one personal interventions with students to if they're not going to class to ask why they're not, you know, help get them the help that they need or redirect them into whatever they need. We've done um, registration weeks, built up earlier registration times so that we get students thinking more and less likely to stop out because they haven't registered yet. Um, doing all of that, we created a strategic planning process um, back in 2019, which instead of a top-down process, it's really been a bottom-up process. So we brought everybody together and had a community day and had people sharing ideas. And then we distilled those into 32 different strategic initiatives. And we are now at the process of implementing those. Several of those focus on retention. One is we've never had a freshman year experience program, which seems kind of strange. Um, back in 1987, I think, I taught my very first freshman year experience course. So I get here and there's no freshman year experience course. So you know, those, the sorts of things that have that have, are tried and true out there in the marketplace, we are doing here now, and they are strategic initiatives out of our strategic plan. So we're, we have a team that focuses on that and moves those ahead. So we'll implement that sort of thing. So with retention, I wish it was just one thing, but it's everything. So, you know, we're starting with at the time of recruitment you know, when students are here on campus, what are we recruiting to and what are we recruiting for? And then when we orient them, what are we orienting them to and what are we orienting them for? And including the components in that, like we're orienting them for persistence through to graduation. So how do we, what do we need to do and include in that freshman orientation program that pulls them through? Um, all our res halls up until I started were all apartment style living. So we didn't have a food service. Uh, we had a grill, but we didn't have an actual dining hall. So now we have a traditional res hall that the college has built and we have a traditional dining hall approach. So what we're doing with the dining hall and with the res hall, we program them so that there is something going on that engages students and keeps them connected to one another, keeps them connected to the school and keeps them connected to faculty and staff here who can help them to succeed. Starting in January, I'm giving all employees, part-time and full-time employees, one free meal a day, breakfast, lunch, or dinner, but they have to go over and eat in the dining hall and be with the students so they can make a decision. So adjunct faculty coming in to teach on Tuesday nights, you know, can come here early, go to the dining hall, eat, interact with students. All of that interaction builds community and should result in better retention and better persistence. And speaking of engagement, how are you engaging businesses to make sure when we look at lifelong learning and after graduation yeah. that, you know, that's, careers persist? Yeah, that's also one of our strategic initiatives is um, one focused on focused on education, delivery, and corporate training. <laughs> I have the paperwork here for that one. Um, so we, we have a very active career services organization. So that's where we're starting from, um, you know, to bring, to connect students into internships, but also to connect the now to connect those companies back to us in terms of what kind of training do they need. And we're looking at um, the faculty is at work now on changing up our curriculum so that 
that we'll be able to offer stackable degrees. And some of those things that get stacked together might be a two course or three course certificate that could be used for corporate training, but then also be considered a part of the degree program here. Um, we had a very um, committed, wonderful faculty member. She'd been here more than 30 years and she retired this past May. So before she retired, I said, would you have any interest in being a curriculum designer? Because anything that was dynamic, she had her finger involved in. Somehow she was involved in it here. So she's trusted by the faculty. She's excellent at what she does. And she's helping us with our strategic team that, you know, part of the plan that's doing that to actually re-envision our degrees. So I suspect probably, I should have a probably two new degree programs to offer, at, you know, approved this year. And then um, probably within five years, I think you'll see us doing education differently. And maybe even before that, because the pace of change has just picked up tremendously. So we have to keep pace with that. Dr. Perry, um, I, I, looked, I read some of the interviews you had. So here, here's an interesting point. Okay. You said in one of the interviews, you wanted to be Mary Tyler Moore and work in TV news. <laughs> so. I did. Yeah, I did. I always, I used to watch the Mary Tyler Moore show and I just thought she was awesome. I grew up in a the town is called Parish, New York. Um, I don't even know if there are 500 people that live there any longer, but I grew up in Parish, New York, little tiny town. Um, there were roughly 100 or so people in my high school graduating class. Um, not very many went on to college. Uh, some went into the military and some went to college later as adults, but very few you know, went on directly as on, you know, into the undergrad program from high school. And, you know, there just wasn't a lot around there. And so I used to just love that show. So I always thought, oh, that's what I want to do. So I had applied to Syracuse University and wanted to go to the Newhouse School of Public Communications. My dad was a printer at the Syracuse newspapers. So I thought, oh, I can, you know, I could go there. And I, and I also applied at LeMoyne College in Syracuse. And both, I got accepted to both, but I got better aid at LeMoyne and I could afford to go there. So I went there for my freshman year, but some of my scholarship aid that I received there was only a one-year scholarship. It was only to you know kind of get you in the door. So I really couldn't afford to continue there. So I transferred schools at that point to SUNY Binghamton, but television news and that sort of thing was where I thought I always wanted to be. And I'm kind of glad now because you have to be so focused on how you look. So I don't know that I would want that pressure every day. I kind of like, you know, the days, like you guys didn't see me yesterday, but I was in, you know, athletic gear and hair in a ponytail, you know, so. Yeah, I, I was works. a broadcast journalism major, so I understand. Yeah, it's, yeah, I just don't think I could do that. <laughs> And knowing now what I know now, I, it, but I just thought she was awesome too. And I love the thing where, you know, she throws her hat in the air and all that. And I, I don't think most of our listeners, the younger ones know that she was on Dick Van Dyke. Most people are going to say, what, what is, what is oh, that? Yeah. Show? <laughs> you know? yeah, she was something. <laughs> yeah, she was very special. And 
Uh, is, is it fair to say you're a Buffalo Bills fan if, if you're from that that region? Um, I, you know, I don't watch a lot of professional football, but the closest to having a professional team that I have really liked was I watched uh, the Chicago Bears because I had a cousin back in the 1980s. My cousin Todd Perry played. He was um, he was number 75 for the Bears for a long time. Oh, really? And he went from wow. there to um, Dolphins. He played for Wanstat at at Chicago. And then when Wanstead went to the Dolphins, he was there for a year. And then Todd went there for a year. So I used to watch the Bears all the time, watch the Dolphins when Todd played there. And then other than that, I watch Ohio State football. I love Ohio State football. So <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> They're doing good. And, and by the way, Justin Field, who is from the uh, Ohio State, is a quarterback of the Bears. So there's a connection yes. there. There you go. Uh, um, so uh, you know, you, you were the president of three universities. Uh -huh. What do you take from one school to another? Is, is, is the, are the skills transferable? I mean, do you find it transferable or is it just, it's a complete new restart? Yeah, no, they're, they're transferable, but every school is different. Every school has a different personality. What mm -hmm. my first one needed was, well, and what I've learned I tend to be very high energy. And so every place I've been, people always remark about, oh, you know, you're a breath of fresh air. And I always think, uh, you know, we'll see if you still want to say that in another couple of years. Yes. But when I got to the first one, they, they were just tired and they had a great story. They had a great history. It, it really is a fascinating place, but they needed new life breathed into them and they needed to see what they could be. Um, they were in, a, in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and there are seven colleges in that general area, and they were small, and they were two years, so they felt like they were the redheaded stepchild out on the west side of town, and, you know, couldn't compete, but it's like, wait a minute, you guys have this amazing history and amazing story, and we can be anything we want to be. And so we started a strategic planning process there to figure out what our future is and claim that spot. And the big question there was whether or not they should go four-year. And, you know, there's a lot of four-year institutions, and now there's a lot of four-year institutions that we're seeing are closing. So, you know, do they want to go four-year? So my job really was to get them energized, get them thinking about who and what they could be, and move them ahead into what their future could be. So I was there for six years and we did a lot of good work, raised money, built a building um, and got them ready so that they could answer that question after I left. So they, they took a couple years after I left, answered the question and now they're moving into that, you know, into that world. And I'm excited because it's like, I can see the role that I played to get them. They, they couldn't be doing what they're doing now had I not led what I led there back then. Then when I got to my second institution, that was a financially very stressed institution. And they too, though, needed to see their future. So what could that be and how can we move them ahead? And the way that we determined there was through graduate health sciences. And so we um, worked with the USDA to, we got debt refinanced and got a large loan from them to be able to build a graduate health science building partnered with the community there because 
um, the college is in a little town outside of Albemarle, North Carolina. So they were in Meisenheimer. And the only thing in Meisenheimer is the university. And Albemarle is about eight miles away. And so that's our college town, but there was very little connection back and forth between the town. But if, but the college couldn't be successful unless Albemarle, North Carolina was successful. And if Albemarle, North Carolina is successful, the college is gonna be successful. So we needed that town gun relationship there. So I worked, so there my job was really to get us focused on our future. What could, what could be our future that would help to lead them out of financial distress? So we did that and we had a lot of bumps in the road there. It was a very tiring place to be, but I felt like, you know, we got to where we needed to be and now they have a trajectory. You know, they, they've got a lot of work to do, but they've got a, a, you know, a plan and a way to move ahead. And then when I was approached about Goldie Beacom, this is the first time I've ever really looked at how can the personal and the professional really come together? Um, here, I'm about two hours from my son who's getting married on New Year's Eve. And I'm about four and a half hours from my parents who are in failing health. And this gets me so that I'm less than an afternoon from them and I'm a couple hours from my son. So it's right, you know, good location for me. And it was a school that had financial, you know, financial strength because of our endowment size and the opportunity to take something that's got it just needs to be reinvigorated and reconfigured and moving ahead. I figure I've got about 10 years worth of work. Uh, the trustees, after my first year, they signed me to a three-year agreement when I got here. After my first year, they must have liked it enough where because they came back and asked if I would sign a 10-year agreement. So I did, and I figure I've got about 10 years of birth. So the skills that I brought with me naturally have been used in every setting, but differently. And I've had to read the institution and figure out, um, Goldie Beacom is 135 years old, but has always had a very internal focus. We've not really looked externally. Now we've got to look externally and see what the world is doing so that we can figure out our place in there. So it's, it's been an interesting thing, uh, interesting career to have. And, you know, you went through a lot of personal hardship during your first tenure and you overcame, it's incredible what you had to overcome uh, during that period right before your inauguration and, 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 you know, a job that you didn't want, but you, you have embraced all of them. You raised, what is it, tens of millions of dollars for a small college. Yeah. And you were going through that personal, personal test and, how, how did you manage such difficult, difficult time? I mean, it's a challenging job. You're going to your personal, uh, you know, battle. Uh, do you mind giving us a glimpse into your resilience and character during that time? Yeah, no, not at all. Um, I was about, I think, 15 days away from my one-year anniversary at my first college when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And... So it was luckily stage one and they caught it early and I didn't have any lymph node involvement, but I still had to go through um, chemotherapy, uh, surgeries, radiation, um, adjuvant therapy after all of that. Um, 
And so I was diagnosed in June of 2010 and not quite done with my first year. So I, all of a sudden I'm in this situation where I'm fairly new in town. I have this pretty serious diagnosis. I got to figure out, you know, how I'm going to go ahead. And work is what keeps you going sometimes. And, you know, I, somebody asked me, you know, what gets you up in the morning? And I thought, well, you know, I've got 800 students. So there's 800 reasons to get up out of bed every day. And if I don't get up out of bed and do what I do, then they can't, they don't have a chance to do what they do. It starts, you know, I have to do what I do in order for them to be able to have what they have. But, you know, so that, that really keeps you going. And you have around you, I realized you know, very dearly at that point, how lucky I really was because, you know, I worked in a setting where I have a provost and I have vice presidents and I have people who can step in when I need them to step in and do some things. So if I was having a day where I was just tired or um, having a reaction, you know, day three after chemo was my bad day. And so I tried to make sure I had my chemos on Fridays so that by, so Sunday was my bad day so that Monday I could still go to work. But sometimes on Monday, I was still having a bad morning. So I would need a little more time. So I had people around me um, that could, could help out. And a lot of people don't have that. Um, I have, after my chemos, my white blood cell count would go way down as do a lot of people. And sometimes you need to have a shot the second on the day after chemo. So you go have your chemo. And in my case, it took about seven or eight hours to get through the, the chemotherapy protocol because I had three different drugs. And then the next day I would be, my immune system would be seriously in trouble because you know, I just didn't have enough white blood cells. So I would have to go back and have a shot. And I go back into the shot clinic and they're giving me, you know, my Neupogen shot. And there's a guy who comes in and he's in there for a Neupogen shot and he's wearing a vest, um, a, a safety vest. He worked on a road crew. And so he did, you know, helped the traffic as they, as the crew was out, you know, paving and doing work on the roads. Well, I had gone through chemo the day before as had he, I'm in there for my shot. He's in there for his shot, but he's got to go to work and he's got to go stand outside and direct traffic in a safety vest. How, you know, how lucky am I and how awful, I mean, my heart broke. All I could think of was how in the hell do you do this? You know, and how lucky am I? So I tell people that all the time that, you know, you never know what somebody else is going through and you need to, you need to chill and demonstrate a little bit of grace because you just don't know, but I don't know how that man did that. And I, I never knew who he was. So I, I've never followed up. I get emotional just listening to that story. I mean, it's, it's just so uh, heartfelt and, and thanks for sharing that. I, I, I don't think most people unless someone has been in chemo and they realize the, the day after it's like getting hit by a truck but being run over 15 times and having the resilience to get up and and push yourself that just takes mountain courage and and, and those 800 students to push you and which brings me to this question and thanks for sharing that that, that was 
Oh, you're welcome. I, I, I really value that. Um, you know, I want to talk about crisis management a little bit because I do think universities, whether they want to, especially smaller regional or liberal arts or various colleges, you know, it, it comes down to acknowledgement. You know, has the crisis happened? Has it not happened? What stage of the crisis can we be on? So you take into consideration the lowering birth rate. We've had a 15% drop in, in undergraduate enrollment in the last 10 years because of lower birth rates. We've had COVID-19 and there's, there's apparently no care fund. I'm not sure this coming year. And then obviously access to international students has dropped because of travel restrictions. So when being a president of three universities, how do you think about crisis management and, and how important is that in operating an institution where you have to be both a CEO and a mayor at the same time? Yeah. <laughs> well, you have to you have to do your homework and you've got to understand what the crisis is and what the problem is that you're trying to solve. You have to be as transparent as you can be without, you know, generating a sense of doom or, you know, we're all going to fall apart or the world's going to end, you know, so you have to, you have to be able to share what you can share when you can share it. And, but also keep looking ahead and gathering as much information and intelligence as you can to factor into your decisions because you know that's about all you can really do the whole unknown with covid has been um that that has been a tough thing i will say that having been a college president in south carolina and in north carolina where you have hurricanes helps because you know you kind of you have to quickly pivot you have to make some decisions and that helped in figuring out what we needed to do both initially, but also as you go on, because, you know, that, that that could change the nature of your delivery mode at any given time. And you just have to con continually be nimble and talk to people. So I, I sometimes get tired of saying the same thing over and over and over again, but I also know that people hear things differently Sometimes they don't hear you say it the first time, so they but they might hear it the fourth time. And you have to just keep saying the same things over and being consistent and transparent in your message while at the same time gathering all of the all of the information that you can to factor into making your decision. I don't think there's any any magic to it. Um, and then you know some crises are are more difficult to handle than others. I had a situation at one point where we had an embezzlement at a college that I was at. And it was a pretty large embezzlement and it was not their first one. There had been one several years before I got there. And so, you know, you see it and you have to, you know, I put the person on leave. We did the investigation. We worked with the US Attorney's Office. We worked with the FBI. We got our arms wrapped around it and we communicated clearly what we were doing um, and agreed to participate in prosecution of the individual. And you know, that's the kind of thing that erodes trust in the in the university. It erodes, you know, relationships and everything. But you know, I feel like we got through it and came through it very well because of how we handled it. And we were very upfront that 
you know, this was not something that was going to get swept under the rug because that's what people thought would happen. Oh, you know, small town is just going to get swept under the rug. Well, no, you know, it can't because that's not right. And that's not fair to our students. Because in my mind, if there's an embezzlement like that, basically students are taking out loans to pay their tuition. And, you know, so you're stealing from the students that are taking out loans to pay their tuition. We're not going to do that. And we're not going to stand by and let that happen. So, you know, we were able to, I think, come out of that okay. But it was, you know, hurtful for the institution and really a, a crisis point for us. But people banded together and supported one another and supported the decisions that I made through that. So I feel like, you know, the being honest, transparent, and every call that came in, I answered and talked to everybody. And you also mentioned hurricanes. So you have internal crises that you have to deal with, which is people related. I mean, we've right. seen bigger schools having to pay billion, billions of dollars in fines for mm -hmm. just not focusing. You have the external crises, uh, which are macro level, which is COVID and uh, declining enrollment. And then you have, I mean, I guess COVID could also be just global crises. Uh, then you also have hurricanes and things you can't even plan for. So, um, you know, it's, it's not a linear planning. There's always surprises that, that you can't control. And we, we've had a cultural crisis on top of COVID, you being one of the top premier criminal justice schools and educators. Uh, we would be curious to hear about, you know, the incident of George Floyd, Barriana Taylor, as far as criminal justice re reform and education, where does higher education come in in, 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 in actually tackling some of this thorny, uh, I would say, social matters? Um, right now, I think the bigger schools actually do play more of a role in that. You know, the, the University of Delaware's, the Ohio State's, that sort of thing, because they're producing research that is helping to inform what's happening out there and what needs to happen out there. But I think schools like Goldie Beacom can play just as large a role at the level of making sure that we're having conversations with the external agencies, with the communities that we're in, and talking about these things. And you know, why is it happening? And what, what can we do about it? And what do our students need to know before they go out there as professionals in that field? How can we help them to become more aware of themselves and, and themselves in relation to others? especially people that are different than they are and and be very overt about having those conversations you know make sure that you're not just keeping that on campus but you're going into the communities and being a part of the communities and having the conversations out there i think colleges that have pro, like criminal justice programs or social work programs need to be a part of their larger community in a major way because of those sorts of societal problems. You know, everything gets, we all look for a system that's going to solve everything. And I look at the K through 12 system, and I often wonder, how do those teachers ever actually teach? Because it started years and years ago, you know, schools have to solve all the problems of society, but they can't. And they have to educate students, but they, you know, they can't do it all. And I think it's up to colleges and 
everyone in society to have these conversations so that we can start to look at what's reasonable to expect out of our agencies that are out there and what's reasonable to expect out of each of us as we interact with and treat one in, one another with respect. Dr. Perry, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so oh, much. Thank you. It's been delightful to be here. Thank you for having me. Likewise. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more information on Plexus, you can visit us at plexus.com forward slash solutions. That's P-L-E-X-U-S-S dot com forward slash solutions. Or you can email us at podcast at plexus.com.